I recently went on a date actually where like very early on, like literally 10 minutes into the conversation, we were talking about like what we wanted from each other. And he kind of just sat me down and he was like, I want to experience romantic connection without the expectation that we will eventually be sharing a bank account. And I was like, great, because I have someone I already am doing that with and I'm not looking for that from you. And I think this will work out beautifully. (laughs) I'm in my late 20s and I'm finding myself at this stage where lots of people I know are starting to have conversations about engagements and babies and mortgages. There's a pretty clear script ahead of me of what society would like my life to look like across the next few decades. None of them are inherently bad things, but I'm really feeling the pressure. And an underlying thing which is presumed by all of these is monogamy. And that's not something that happens in my life anymore. I'm Ruby Rare. I'm a sex educator, an author, and this is In Touch a documentary series offering an intimate and playful education around the different ways that we connect to sex, relationships, and our bodies. In this podcast, we're talking about sex in an explicit and honest way. You might hear the occasional bit of strong language. It's also worth mentioning that I'm a survivor of sexual assault, and this is something I'll be mentioning throughout the series. Please be kind to yourself while listening. If you'd like to find out more about this topic, or are looking for support for any of the themes discussed, check the episode description for resources and helplines. Non-monogamy is just that, not monogamy. And it isn't new. There are countless examples of non-monogamy in our own human history and across nature too. Of the roughly 5,000 species of mammals, only 3 to 5% are known to form lifelong pair bonds. In the last few years, I've really felt an increase in the number of people who are interested in non-monogamy. Whether that's the questions I get in my DMs, the number of people who want to come to my talks about it, to the fact it's coming up in conversations more and more with my monogamous friends. There's a cultural curiosity here, but there's still a whole host of misconceptions and assumptions that people make of the reality. I've been non-monogamous for around six years. I'm not anti-monogamy, It's worked for me in the past, and it's a really beautiful, valid relationship type. But it's just one of many ways of doing things. Yeah, cool. Can I request a Britney mic? Next time I'll get you a Britney mic. Yeah, okay, good. I know who you are, but do you want to say who you are? My name's Alex Norris. I'm a cartoonist. My pronouns are they, them. I make a webcomic called Webcomic Name, and mostly I'm Ruby's partner. That's your prime role in mm-hmm. life. That's, yeah. It's all I live for. The rest <laughs> is just to make some money. <laughs> I first heard about non-monogamy through my partner, Ruby. <laughs> is that the first time you'd heard I've of it? I've never heard the word non-monogamy before. I remember you saying the word non-monogamy and I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That sounds great to me. In the context you were giving for it, it just made loads of sense to me. I definitely felt like relieved and excited by your response. That's the first time that I've like built a relationship with non-monogamy from the very beginning without there being any kind of preconceived stuff going on. And that was really refreshing, just us being able to like figure it out together. I date a lot of people who aren't non-monogamous, that consider themselves to be single people and they just are dating me and I'm non-monogamous. And I'm very clear with that from the outset but I think that that for example having a conversation with someone about what they want from a relationship because I'm saying like this is what I'm looking for what are you looking for 
a lot of people will never have that conversation, even ever, but especially not before you've met up. Because you kind of have to do that because I have to be like, is this okay? I'm not going to surprise you with my the fact that I have a partner. Although I will hide in a little sort of box to spring out Day on three, dates you're if, if there, you'd like that. Under, you're there under the table just <laughs> as a reveal. No, can I, can I be in disguise as a waiter? This is my partner. <laughs> Non-monogamy is a big umbrella term. And within that, there are so many different ways to be non-monogamous. I do identify with the term polyamorous as well, but for me, I feel like non-monogamy is a better fit. A trend that I see within my community is that a lot of us are really fascinated by language and the words that we use. Everyone I know is drawn to slightly different terms to define their own relationships, which does mean there will be quite a lot of terminology in this episode. DK Green is a psychotherapist working specifically with GSRD clients, which means gender, sexuality, relationship and diversity. This includes queer clients and people involved in non-monogamy, kink and sex work. Polyamory is what was first used. It's a bit of a hodgepodge of Latin and Greek, but generally meant many loves. So the idea was that you could love more than one person. The reason that is so challenging for society at large is because we have strict socialization, that it is your other half, your one-on-one, your one true love, and so on. And so with all that socialization, there's a genuine feel that you're only supposed to have one person that you're in love with. Otherwise, you're not really in love. The short term for that was poly. That's no longer in use because of Polynesians. It's inappropriate to use the word poly. So we use polyam as a shorthand for polyamory. One way I explain it to people who don't know about it at all is when you have your second child, it doesn't stop you loving your first. If you have four children, it doesn't mean you just stop loving numbers one, two and three. And it's a very similar concept that the human being is actually perfectly capable of loving more than one other human being at a time. There are as many different ways of doing, living, being non-monogamous as you can possibly imagine. Most people are familiar with friends with benefits, which feels like a very culturally accepted form of non-monogamy. And then, of course, there's swinging, symbolised by tall pampas grass in front gardens, which, legend has it, is a sign that the residents are swingers. But here are a few terms that might be new to you. Triads or thruples are relationships made up of three people, and polycules are wider groups of people who are connected through romantic and sexual relationships. Metamor is a word used to describe your partner's partner in relation to you. There are a few ways to describe the partner you might share the bulk of your time with. I've pivoted away from using the term primary partner, as I don't like the idea of putting my loved ones in a hierarchical order, and instead use terms like nesting partner or anchor partner, because the idea of building a nest with someone is adorable. But while my nesting partner and I live together and our lives are more entangled by shared responsibilities, That doesn't mean I consider them more important than other partners. I should mention all of this is rooted in communication and consent. I guess cheating is technically a form of non-monogamy, but it's in a very different category because not everyone involved is consenting or even aware of what's going on. There's also a dialogue that's been going around for some years now that somehow non-monogamy is more evolved, more enlightened in ways of having relationship. I don't buy into that. Neither is better or worse. The bottom line is it has to be right for you and a another person. It has to be, you know, the right mix for both of you. If it isn't, it's not going to work. 
the vast majority of the people I spoke to had no idea about any of this growing up, and it's something we stumbled into as adults. I have the dating app Field to thank for my entry into this world. I matched with a cute person, and in his bio it said he was polyam. I had to look up what that word meant, and thought, well, this sounds interesting. It was through hanging out with him and meeting his partners that I was first drawn to all of this. I remember going round for tea when he had just moved in with his nesting partner and being full of questions about how cohabiting was working when they had multiple partners. I was so grateful to be able to learn from people within the community. It really helped to destigmatize my attitudes to non-monogamy because I could just see it as something that clearly really worked for them. So why couldn't it work for me? My partner and I were both non-monogamous to start with, and it was me that initiated the non-monogamy. Like lots of people, comedian Sophie Duca learnt about non-monogamy when she was in a monogamous relationship. So part of her journey was about opening up and changing an already existing dynamic, which can be a beautiful thing, but is not without its challenges. There's often an assumption, if, say, a couple are new to non-monogamy, that someone's really unhappy and being forced into it. And I think that non-monogamy in my relationship, even though we were both new, it's really benefited our relationship, strengthened our bond, was really good for us. And it's also like informed how we want to live now separately from being like partnered. And that's, yeah, I think a really negative assumption that you're only, that all your problems stem from the non-monogamy and that the other person is an impediment to your happiness. So you just need to like simplify it by taking them out. The older I get, I can sense this pressure about the directions my relationships should be taking. Because there's a pretty clear script about how all of this is meant to go. Find a partner, fall in love, move in together. Then there's the proposal, buying a house, a big wedding, maybe getting a puppy, working your way up to the 2.5 kids and the perfect nuclear family, and then stay with your beloved until you die. Now, none of these things are inherently bad, and I can see myself doing a lot of it and being really happy. But the prescriptive nature of this is stifling. Journalist and writer Amy Graham came up with the term the relationship escalator to describe this. Because once you're on it, it's quite hard to get off. My friend Bronwyn has a blog called Minka Guides, where she writes about travel, queer culture and non-monogamy. She found this feeling of being stuck on the relationship escalator really challenging. I started going into every relationship trying to have an open relationship, not knowing exactly what that looked like or any language around what to do. And so usually I would start a relationship in the first month or so being like, hey, you're great. This is great. How do you feel about having an open relationship? And the other person would be like, yeah, sure, we can totally try that. And then by month three, they'd be like, oh my God, I'm in love with you and I want to be exclusive. And I had no way of articulating what I wanted really. And then... I was in a 10-year relationship that over the course of that, I started to become more and more aware that I was non-monogamous and that was kind of a pretty fundamental thing for me. But my partner was very monogamous and so it always ended up being like, but that's not what they wanted. But then by about seven years in, we started talking more seriously about it and then when that relationship ended, I came out of that being like, right, I know that I am polyamorous and that this is what I want to do and there's no more negotiating around that. Because we're socialised to see veering off the relationship escalator as a failure, 
It can be hard to follow your gut and be curious about other ways of doing things. It takes time and quite a lot of bravery. For the last couple of years, I've been really fascinated by the way that non-monogamy and bisexuality coexist. This is on a personal level because they make up two parts of my identity, but there's also an interesting dynamic going on here because the two share quite a lot of the same stereotypes. I think people think it's all about sex, either in a good or a bad way. So I think they think that you're having terrible sex with your primary partner or the partner that they know, and so you need to go and have sex with other people. Being bi or pan, a lot of similar stereotypes about people who practice non-monogamy and people who are bisexual, like you're obsessed with sex or you're greedy. In my previous relationship is when I started to come into my queerness and acknowledge that about myself and be in queer spaces. And there was a whole romantic and sexual and erotic space that I hadn't allowed myself to be in because I hadn't come to terms with my sexuality. And so in order to be able to have those experiences, discover things about myself, relate to people, non-monogamy was really helpful. Just to clarify, there are loads of really happy monogamous bisexual people. I really don't want to add any stereotyping here. But for me, like Sophie, non-monogamy provided a really gentle space for me to begin exploring my sexuality. And as I became more and more comfortable and confident in my queerness, the fact that I date multiple people is such a delight in my life because it really affirms my sexuality and it allows me to constantly explore gender dynamics. Our expectations of relationships, monogamous included, are informed by our surroundings. Expectations are inherited. And unless we see different ways of doing things, it's easy to not question those expectations. Danson also heard about non-monogamy while on a dating app. That then led to discovering that there was a world of different people that were relating differently from the narratives that I had grown up with, I had seen. My parents had been together for 39 years. And so I only had a model of monogamy and heteronormativity and the conflict between the desires and the longings I had with what the options I thought were available led me to OkCupid and then starting to find those communities online. What would it have been like if we'd all been made aware of different relationship styles earlier on? Just knowing that there were different ways of doing things and that I had the agency to design my relationships in a way that made sense for me would have been really empowering. It would have benefited all the relationships that I've had, from bumbling teenage flings to monogamy to everything beyond. Now, we need to address the elephant in the room, or rather, the green-eyed monster. The most common question I get asked about non-monogamy is, how do you deal with jealousy? Jealousy holds so much power culturally, so it's an understandable question. But over the years, my relationship with jealousy has really changed, and for the better. And I'm not the only one. Jealousy is, guess what, like most things in life, a spectrum. Some people genuinely don't feel jealousy at all, and I've met them, so I know this is true. Some people are intensely jealous, and jealousy is something that's far too painful for them to actually engage with, so probably non-monogamy is not going to be appropriate for them. Most people will feel jealous in certain contexts. And if the choice is to be non-monogamous, knowing that, then it's about learning to navigate your own jealousy, learning what sort of things do trigger it and what don't. And actually, jealousy is something like an emotion, like anything else that we can work with. For years, I feared jealousy 
because it felt like a scary emotion. I just avoided thinking about it. And when I did experience jealousy, it would erupt in an uncontrollable way. And it's only in hindsight that I realised my reactions were stemming from a lack of communication that I needed to feel safe and secure, which made me feel incredibly vulnerable. It took time for me to learn how to look directly at jealousy and where it was coming from to be able to de-escalate that feeling. It can also be tricky when you've never really felt jealousy, like Leanne. Most of the struggles I've had have been kind of dealing with the guilt from the fact that I didn't experience that much jealousy and my partners are having a comparatively much harder time. You know, there is that kind of disparity in experiences sometimes, but obviously, you know, you just kind of work it out with communication and being willing to have a hard conversation and separating the frustration at the situation from your frustration at your partner. My nesting partner is also one of those rare gems who experiences very little jealousy. Often we use jealousy as a way of proving your love in some ways, of going, I feel bad if I think that, you know, you might fancy someone else, and that means I really care about you. I loved having discussions about who we fancy, that in a relationship. Um, and also it's like, who are we kidding? Like, we all fancy other people. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And, it's, and I, it would make me sad if you didn't tell me all of that stuff. If you saw someone who you really fancied and then that was a little secret for me, I'd be like, well, that's the juiciest and the most exciting thing. I um, really like sharing that with you. Yeah. There's actually language for this feeling that Alex is talking about. The old-fashioned cutesy word was frubbly. Compersion is the more commonly used word. And that is actually when you feel joy at seeing your partner's joy, even if it's with somebody else. So you can watch a loving interaction between your partner and somebody else and actually feel genuine happiness for the thing that's making them happy. But there isn't a strict binary between jealousy and compersion. Both of them can be at play simultaneously. Rather than shutting down either of them, it can be really useful to just acknowledge it. Understanding my jealousy as vulnerability has been really useful for me by taking the jealousy out of being like something the other person's brought to you and being like, oh, it's something inside me that maybe needs a little bit of love and care and healing. It's about getting to know jealousy as a friend, you know, recognizing that it's just another emotion you have. And just like the socialization of emotions is joy and happy and all that's good and anger and jealousy and all that's bad. Actually, they're just emotions that we have. We talk about jealousy quite a bit within this community, but outside there are still some difficult conversations to be had because breaking away from monogamy can feel really challenging. I'm curious about what it was like initially telling monogamous loved ones or like family members about polyamory. Well, the people that I was most concerned about sharing that with would have been some of my immediate family. With my mum, I think it was precipitated by a desire to want to have her see more of my life because having lived away from home, there's a lot that my family isn't very, then they don't know what's going on in my life on a day-to-day basis. But also because I felt it really important to be able to show that there are different ways of being. So I told her, and the way it happened is talked about being really in love with my partner and having a lovely community of people around us that I'd want her to get to meet the next time she goes around. And that part of that community were people that I was seeing. And her brain sort of melted. It's that very classic response and like, but don't you get jealous? And then <laughs> I pointed out that actually her dad had been polygamous 
And while she's like, yeah, I can see that, but then the patriarchy snuck in and she was like, but men do that, not women. She then sent me this article, which was from a tabloid newspaper saying, man dies in wife sharing scheme, which was really just clickbait (laughs) with like no context, like nothing around that. I think she was processing. She really was struggling. We need to allow people time to percolate and come to terms with stuff in their own way. And like Danson, some of the people I was most nervous to tell have really surprised me. Well, I had a really tender moment recently where she rang me. I was with our partner and our partner said, oh, do you want to say do you want to say hello to them? And my mum afterwards said, but so um, you're not with them, but you're with them now. She was trying to wrap her head around this different way of being. But then at the end, she was like, and who should I say you should say hello to? Which was a really sweet moment. She was saying, which of the other people in your life should I be telling you to say hello to? Because I know it's not just that one person. Which was a really tender, sweet moment. Like with queer communities, the concept of a chosen family is really important when it comes to non-monogamy. I really value the older non-monogamous figures in my life because it's so nice to see the ways it can change and evolve. For example, something that's not yet happened in my non-monogamous community is people having kids and the way that looks outside of a more traditional structure. What about the children? That's a big question that often comes up. My children have really enjoyed the variety of the non-monogamy. I think it's just really important to also remind people that, hey, yeah, we have jobs too and we pay a mortgage and we have a normal life. We're actually quite a traditional family, but there are more than two of us. You know, there would always be somebody that they could call at three o'clock in the morning if the car broke down or whatever. It's about having that team of us to call on. So there's plenty of joy. When I first started out in non-monogamy, I assumed the most important connections would be the people I was dating or sleeping with. Now, these are important, but what I wasn't expecting was the platonic relationships I'd form within this community and just how special they'd be to me. It's so important to have people in your life who just get it. You don't have a roadmap. And one of the biggest problems is you usually don't have other people that you can talk to about this who have experience and know about it. And you often end up talking to your monogamous friends and they're like, oh, so your partner's other partner has asked you to be shut out for a couple of months so they can work on their relationship. Well, that makes sense because obviously they're living together and their relationship is important and you are just a side piece and you are just not important. But I think one of the biggest struggles is it's very hard to find an identifiable non-monogamous community. And I think particularly in small places, that must be hellishly hard, you know. Looking back at my life, I have always been polyamorous, but I didn't know the word. I didn't know it existed. I kept it quite to myself. Jacqueline co-runs a community called Black Fluent, a black-centred space for people exploring polyamory. I always loved more than one at the same time, but I just didn't have anything that um, indicated that that could be a thing. I'm married. I've been married for 12 years to someone called Tim, and he also helps with the and runs the organisation. Love is abundant. Alongside Bronwyn and their friend Erin, Jacqueline also helps organise a non-monogamous meetup in South London, which focuses on community building over being a pickup spot. It's all about finding the communities that really speak to you. And sometimes, if you don't see the community space you need, you need to be the one to create it. Jacqueline started exploring non-monogamy with her husband. 
So we started attending a few coffee mornings and events around London. And we found ourselves in a space where we wasn't really aligned in personalities. We was the only black people there. And there just wasn't anyone there that looked like us. I know for me, I felt very isolated in my early days. I just didn't have anyone to talk to. It felt really lonely. We need a soft landing for the community and also that feeling of let's normalise this. I just want us to be living in a place with people where it's quite normal. And I think when we all come together and talk about our difficulties, our joys, our living experience, it normalises it, it opens that dialogue. When I first went to the non-monogamy drinks, I found it quite moving going round the room, knowing that I was surrounded by 200 people who share so many common experiences. But it's a privilege to be able to live near a city where events like this take place. Non-monogamous people exist everywhere, but it's not safe for everyone to be out about this part of their life, and many people are unable to access offline spaces like this one. So as someone who spends a lot of time on the internet, I also really enjoy how non-monogamous communities have blossomed online. My journey into non-monogamy began when I was around 17. My partner and I at the time were going long distance. He was going to be studying in America and I was going to be on a gap year in China. We just kind of logically came to the conclusion that perhaps we should try kind of sleeping with other people while we were away from each other. I was very fortunate in that, like my partner and I at the time were both on the same page about things, you know. Leanne runs Polyphilia, an online community about non-monogamy from longer form blog posts to TikToks and Instagram memes that just remind you that you're part of a network of like-minded people. This community building is really fun as well. It doesn't always need to be heavy and serious. As much as loads of us like to nerd out on this stuff, we're also here to have fun. What's become very clear to me is that like from, you know, the number of people who reach out to message me every single day, like quite a lot of people, like they don't live in big cities where there's a high concentration of polyamorous people. They don't live in countries where that are more open minded to these kind of relationship styles. And so they feel very isolated and there is no offline community for them to access. Existing within these communities helps us build a little suit of armour for when we go out into other pockets of the world where this might feel more unusual. It's about balancing between existing in a happy, safe bubble and having these important conversations that help to normalise non-normative relationship styles. One of the most beautiful moments for me was um, coming home and finding my nesting partner with another partner. They were having a cup of tea. I didn't know that my other partner was going to be there. But they were there because my other partner was going through a difficult time and they had a friendship that they could have and they could give each other care and support. Those bits, those are like magic and aren't talked about, but the possibility of interconnectedness of warm and care and support that's possible is radical and is strange to a lot of people. It's about finding those moments of elation and relishing them. It's pure joy, it's pure joy. Besides all the workshops and mentoring, and good education we've got out there, let's not forget the fun and the lovely part of it. Let's not get too serious about it. I'm not minimising the need for unpacking and all that, but you know, that's those little joys in life. That's why we do it and that's why we're here. These conversations benefit all of us, whatever your relationship style. 
every single one of our relationships are different. And non-monogamous or not, it's so important to remember that we can tailor them to work for us. But the pillar stones of any relationship remains the same. It's all about healthy communication, facing the challenges with compassion, and being curious. I've been non-monogamous for years now, and that has looked really different at different times. My relationships, like myself, are something that are going to evolve throughout my life. And I'm really excited to see what that looks like. But for the time being, I'm just really loving where I'm at right now. Is there anything else you want to chat about? So... For dinner tonight, what would you... <laughs> oh no, we have to go to the we shops. We actually do have to, go to figure out dinner. Oh. Thank you for having me, Ruby. It's been a pleasure. I hope to see you again when I open my eyes again after blinking. There you Here are. I am. There you are. <laughs> I blinked. Next time on In Touch. It's really paradoxical that porn can be so available to everyone and at the same time so wildly misunderstood. I feel that porn has informed quite a lot of the cultural zeitgeist, I guess, like when it comes to cultural perceptions of like certain groups and marginalized folks. Ethics doesn't just lie at the production side. There should also be an onus on people who are consuming it. In Touch was hosted by me, Ruby Rare. It was produced by B. Duncan with executive producer Hannah Walker-Brown. The production assistants were Rory Boyle and Mars West. This is a Broccoli production.